Jesus, we come before you, Lord, and we ask for a fresh anointing of your spirit that we, you would guide us in your truth. God, that you would challenge us, that you would encourage us, that we would recognize. Um, the main thing that you want us to recognize through this text is you share a story with us um, in regards to the power of prayer. Uh, Lord, I pray that our prayer lives would continue to grow and we would see you showing up in our different lives as we seek you. God, so we thank you. Uh, we ask you to bless our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you recall, we've been going through the book of Acts. Uh, we were in Acts chapter 11. We finished those last um, few verses, verses 19 to 30 last week. Uh, and what we see is the church, it continues to grow. But interestingly enough, it's growing through persecution. And we see these people, these Hellenistic Jewish Christians, if you will, uh, they're scattering abroad 300 miles away from Jerusalem where they start. All since the persecution of Stephen when he was martyred back in Acts chapter 7. But we also see not just the church being persecuted and the church growing, but as the church is growing, people are getting plugged in. People are getting involved. People are playing their roles and operating in their roles for the glory of God and the edification of the body. We don't just see people professing faith. We see people living out their faith. And this is one of the reasons that the church continues to grow. It has the support from the people in the church to make these things happen. Well, that was our emphasis last week. This week, we're going to look at the prayer lives of the church or the prayer life of the church as a whole. As the people pray, God's going to move and God's going to move in powerful ways. We'll see how the prayer life of the early church radically changed their circumstances. Title of this teaching, simply put, the power of prayer. The power of prayer. We will see how prayer changes things. But maybe I don't even have to tell you this. Anyone ever have a prayer that's been answered before? Yeah, right? Maybe it's a little one. Maybe it's a big one. I want you to think about some of the bigger ones, the prayers that God has answered in your life. And I really want you to filter this entire teaching in this text through your personal prayer life and specifically the powerful prayers that God has answered in a radical way. Because here's the deal. Just as God worked through prayer 2,000 years ago, He still wants to do that today. And prayer is still powerful today. The things He does in the book of Acts, He still wants to do today. And maybe we would see more of it if we prayed for more of it. Well, let's look at it. Acts chapter 12, verse 1 says, Now, about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then... He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now, Herod, this can get confusing. Um, there are several Herods uh, in the Bible, and they're all bad dudes, right? So we see Herod the Great back in the beginning of the gospel, specifically Matthew. He went out to kill Jesus, right? He wanted to kill all the firstborn because he found out that the Messiah was coming. He died in around 4 BC, many historians say. Uh, and he was the grandfather of this Herod. This is Herod Agrippa. Well, this Herod 
had another Herod who was his uncle, Herod Antipas. And it was Herod Antipas who had John the Baptist beheaded, if you remember, if you were with us when we were teaching through Matthew. And he was also a crucial part in having Jesus crucified. Okay, so that's this guy's uncle. Okay, so we see this lineage. They're out to kill Jesus and take out the church. And that's exactly what Herod Agrippa is doing. It says, once again, about that time, Herod... The king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Now, Herod was uh, the king of Judea, that southern region of Israel. So that's where Jerusalem is, and that's where the church started. Okay, so he's a big part of the persecution that's happening in the early church. Now, why is he doing this? Could be many reasons. Practically, logically, though, we know that the Jews, at least the Jews that haven't been converted to Christianity, they hate. They hate the Christians. Why? Well, in their eyes, by saying Jesus is equal to God, they think they're committing blasphemy. And we see the evidence of this hate uh, through the martyrdom of Stephen. We see it through the persecution of Paul. We see it left and right through the Sanhedrin imprisoning the apostles. So this was likely a political move on Herod's part. Okay, I see all the Jews hate this group of Christians. If I persecute them and help these Jews persecute these Christians, then maybe I'll gain favor with man. And he will gain favor with man, but he's going to lose favor with God, as we'll see at the end of this chapter. As he harasses the church, look what it says in verse 2. Then he killed James, the brother of John. If you recall, Jesus had uh, obviously his 12 disciples, uh, but he also had three guys that he was really close with, right? Peter, James, and John. And he spends more time with them than anyone else. This is that James, the brother of John. We haven't really seen James do anything throughout the book of Acts, and now we hear him mentioned, and he's being martyred. In fact, he was the first of the 12 apostles that was mar- martyred. The very first one, we will see later on in history, that all the other apostles apart from John the apostle were eventually martyred for their faith but this shouldn't surprise us why if you remember Jesus had promised James and John specifically that they were going to suffer for their faith let me show you it's Matthew chapter 20 give you a little context uh, Zebedee's wife the mother of John and James uh, they she, she comes to Jesus and say hey will, will you grant that my sons will sit one on your right hand and one on your left hand in the kingdom Good mom, I want to take care of my kids. I want them close to Jesus. I want them to be taken care of by Jesus. I want them to have positions in close proximity to Jesus. Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Look what happens. Verse 21, Matthew chapter 20. Then he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, grant that these two sons of mine may sit one on your right hand and the other on the left hand in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, John and James, we are able. So he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not my to give but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my father jesus made a promise to say yeah you're going to be baptized with my baptism you're going to be baptized by the holy spirit but also you're going to drink the cup that i drank 
What cup is he talking about? The cup of suffering. Remember that cup in the Garden of Gethsemane that he says, Lord, if it's possible, Father, uh, let this cup pass from me. He's speaking of his suffering. So he tells them, yeah, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. But you're also going to have to drink the cup of suffering. Now, James' cup of suffering and John's were very different. But this was a promise from Jesus. You know what? Jesus gives us this promise too. He says, in this world you will have tribulation. Through the Apostle Paul, he says, everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That's a promise for all of us. We will have to drink our own cup of suffering, if you will. When it happens, it shouldn't surprise us. James, whether he was surprised or not, the reality of it is he was killed. The phrase here implies that he was beheaded. He was killed specifically for his faith. But he didn't die in vain. Later on, early church historian Eusebius tells us that there was actually a Roman guard that James was having interactions with. And James, by the power of his testimony, was able to, by the grace of God, lead this man to the Lord. James, he didn't die alone. This Roman guard ended up professing Christ too and he died right alongside James. So though he received this persecution, though he faced traumatic suffering to the point of death, his suffering wasn't in vain. He used the suffering of this, of James to get the gospel out there. Now this gets a little interesting. There, all the apostles are in Jerusalem. Okay, we know that still, unless they're, you know, doing these short-term missions. Okay, but the apostles are still primary, primarily in Jerusalem. Why would Herod go after James? Why didn't he take somebody else? Why didn't he take John or Nathaniel or Philip or one of these other people? We don't know for sure. Could have been circumstances. But let me ask you this. If you're trying to take out a movement, who do you take out? One of the primary leaders of that movement, right? And we see James, obviously, with John and Peter. They're really close with Jesus. My personal conviction is that James was an absolute pillar in the early church. And though we don't see him out there like John and Peter preaching the gospel to the masses, he's the first one Herod takes out. And he could have taken any one of the apostles. Anyone played football ever? Yeah. Okay. If you're a football player, specifically on defense, say linebacker, defensive end, what's one of your primary goals? To take out the quarterback, right? In fact, in the NFL, so many players and coaches have gotten in trouble because they put bounties. That's what they call them. Bounties on, like to literally, they put a bounty on the quarterback. If you injure him, you get paid more money. Crazy, right? Hopefully they stopped doing that. This wasn't that long ago. See, Herod made a wise move. I'm going to take out one of the primary leaders of this movement by, but because by taking him out, maybe I'll instill fear in the church and maybe I'll minimize this growing and moving that God is doing through the church. We will see it's not going to work. Look what happens. Acts chapter 12, verse 3. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, obviously why, again, the reason why he did this primarily was to gain favor with Jews. It actually worked. He's like, all right, the Jews are happy that I killed this innocent man. I might as well do it again. So he takes Peter and he has Peter arrested. 
But he doesn't kill him yet. Because it's the feast of unleavened bread. Look what happens in verse 4. So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. So we see he doesn't kill Peter right away. Why? Because it's the Passover. Now, during that time period, uh, when you you probably had millions of uh, min, millions of Jewish men uh, there in Jerusalem. Why? Well, there were three feasts that it was mandatory for every Jewish man, if he was able, to get to Jerusalem to celebrate that feast. These feasts were Passover, which connects to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It marks the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Then you would have the Feast of Pentecost or the Feast of weeks, then later on in the fall, you'd have the Feast of Tabernacles. So this is a time where uh, Jerusalem is packed. There's tons of people. And though Herod knows that the Jews are on his side as he persecutes Christians, there aren't just Jews here. There are believers here because we see the early church still coming to these feasts and celebrating things like the Passover and unleavened bread and festivals of that nature. So Herod He doesn't want to kill Peter right away, even though many of the Jews will be happy. There's going to be some believers that that are upset. And this could cause an uproar. This could cause a revolt. And Herod can't afford to have that happen. As many people as he would please, there would be also many that were displeased. So he waits till, he's planning on waiting until after the Passover. The text continues, Acts chapter 12, verse 5. But Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. This is the crucial transition point of the entire text. Peter's in prison, but the church is praying. This is point number one. Persecution prompts prayer. Persecution prompts prayer. I don't know about you, but when I'm going through trials of various natures, one of the first things I do is pray, right? When I'm going through a difficult time, whether it's literally some form of persecution or it's just some obstacle or some type of trial or hardship or difficulty, I pray to the Lord. That's a good thing to pray to God when we go through difficult situations. Now, we should pray to God always, obviously, right? Pray without ceasing, but we do see when Difficult circumstances are brought into our life. It leads us to pray. That's exactly what the Bible tells us to do. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, if you want to write it down. In Philippians 4, 6, Paul says, while he's in prison, mind you, connection there. He says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. Don't like wig out. Don't go crazy. You're going through a hard time. He's speaking from a place of moral authority. I'm in prison. I'm telling you, I'm not anxious. And I can tell you not to be anxious uh, because I'm not anxious. And the way that I was able to overcome my anxiety was through prayer. It was through prayer. One of my favorite examples of this is in Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel chapter 2, if you know the story, uh, we see Nebuchadnezzar, he has this dream, right? But he doesn't just ask someone to interpret the dream so that the interpretation is legitimate. He says, you tell me what I dreamt and then interpret it, right? Like this is next to impossible. But what's impossible with man is possible with God. Now, Arioch, he's one of the leaders of 
uh, of the army there in Babylon. He comes to kill Daniel and his buddy, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Because none of the wise men could interpret the dream. Okay, But look what happens here in Daniel chapter 2. Verse 14, it says, Then, with counsel and wisdom, Daniel answered Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. So he's literally facing death right now, Daniel is. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the decision known to Daniel. So Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time that he might tell the king the interpretation. Then Daniel went to his house and made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning this secret so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Look at that. Daniel, he doesn't panic. He prays. He seeks the Lord. He doesn't go, hey guys, we need a dip out of Babylon because Ariok's coming to kill us. No, he put it all in the hands of God. Hey guys, this is what's going on. Um, and basically, if God doesn't answer this prayer, we're all dead men. But he didn't wig out. We see no indication of anxiety. He has peace. He just simply gives this thing to the Lord. It's exactly what we're called to do when we face difficulties or trials of various nature. We're called to pray. But we see here that it's the church that's praying. In fact, it says here, as Peter was therefore kept in prison, constant prayer was offered. This phrase, constant prayer, is the same phrase that's used to describe Jesus' prayer in Luke chapter 22, verse 42 in the garden. Remember when he's sweating blood out of his head? It's the same phrase. So there, Luke, the author, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is likening the fervency of the prayer of the early church to Jesus' prayer in the garden. This isn't just some like eh, eh, prayer to get through it. Like they are praying earnestly. There's fervency. There's desire. There's passion. There's zeal. There are even emotions connected and effort connected to this specific prayer. Who are they praying for? They're praying for Peter. They're praying for one of their leaders. The Bible charges us to do just that that we're called to pray for our leaders let me show you it's first timothy first timothy chapter 2 verse 1 he says therefore i exhort first of all that supplications prayers intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all men for kings and all who are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence he says, yeah, pray for all men. He says, especially your leaders, in other words. Now, leaders, what kind of leaders? All kinds of leaders. Spiritual leaders, uh, leaders of the government, leaders at work. It doesn't matter. We're called to pray for our leaders. It doesn't matter if we see eye to eye with them. It doesn't matter if we disagree with them about everything. The Bible tells us to pray for our leaders. Why? Because God, he changes our heart towards them through prayer. And he also changes circumstances through prayer. He can change their hearts through prayer. He can even put it on their heart to make more edifying decisions for the people that they're over. 
If you're a Democrat, doesn't mean that you can't pray for Republican leaders. And if you're a Republican, doesn't mean that you can't pray for Democratic leaders. We're called to. We're supposed to. And sometimes we draw the line in the sand. I'm on this side, you're on this side, so you're just the enemy of God and I don't want anything to do with you. And I get that in part, but the reality of it is we're called to pray for them. And you know what often happens, as I partially mentioned, when we pray for leaders, I've found in my life, specifically leaders that I've been directly under, like God starts changing my heart towards them and the decisions that they make. And there's more compassion and there's more grace and there's more love because I'm bringing God into the middle of that. And my heart starts to align with their heart and this crazy supernatural thing happens and it all happens through prayer. So the church is praying for their leader. Look what Peter's doing in verse 6. And when Herod was about to bring him out that night, Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. What's Peter doing? He's sleeping. Okay, I don't know about you, if I knew, but if I knew that I was going to die in a couple days, I don't know if I'd be able to sleep, right? I would be like ridden probably with anxiety. Oh my gosh, what am I going to do for these last 24 hours or this last week, however much longer he has? Not Peter. Peter's got so much peace in his trial, he's able to sleep. Where do you think he learned this from? He learned it from Jesus. You remember Jesus? He put the disciples on a boat, got in that boat with them, led them right into a storm. In the midst of the storm, Jesus is sleeping. He's fast asleep. The disciples, I got to remind you, four of these guys are fishermen, so they knew the seas. They thought they were going to die. They said, Lord, do you not care that we're perishing? Jesus is fast asleep. He says, peace be still. That wasn't just for the storm. That was for them. Peter learned this from his Lord and Savior. Jesus wasn't just teaching the disciples to trust him in the midst of the trial. He was teaching them to be like him in the midst of the trial. That we should have so much peace that we're able to sleep. Now, don't take this out of context. I'm not saying when you have trials, just sleep through them and pretend they're not there. Okay, that's not what I'm saying. But in specific circumstances, as we see here, When we go through trials, the Lord is faithful to give us that peace that surpasses all knowledge and understanding when we are seeking him. That we can just, I got nothing to worry about. I might die in a couple days, but the reality of it is God's got me. That's the mentality of Peter. And he gained this mentality from the Lord himself. In Acts chapter 12, verse 7. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him and a light shone in the prison and he struck Peter on the side and raised him up saying, arise quickly and his chains fell off his hands. Through prayer, God sends an angel and now the chains are broken. This is point number two, prayer breaks chains. Prayer breaks chains. Literally, the power of prayer is going to deliver Peter from his imprisonment. The Bible likes our sin, likens our sin to a spiritual imprisonment. And God can truly break the chains of our sin through prayer. You remember, it's Romans chapter 7. Paul the Apostle, he's talking about the battle between the flesh and the spirit. And if you want to write it down, I'll just summarize this. It's Romans 7 verses uh, 15 and 24. And and, and you remember he says, uh, I do the things that I hate to do. 
And, and I don't do the things that I want to do. He's like, there's something going on inside of me. And how does he conclude that? He says, oh, wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of flesh? He says, I thank the Lord Jesus Christ. What does he mean? Only Jesus Christ can deliver me from the bondage of my sin. Only Jesus Christ can me can uh, deliver me from this flesh that's leading me to destruction. Only Jesus Christ can break the chains. That's it. He's the only one. But sometimes we got to ask him, Lord, break these chains. Whether you've been walking with the Lord for decades or you just came to the Lord or not even walking with the Lord right now. We should ask God to break our chains. David did it. If you remember, if you've been with us on Wednesday nights, been in 2 Samuel. David, he just recently committed the sin against Bathsheba and Uriah. Remember the adultery and the murder and everything that went along with that? And you know what he says in Psalm 51? Talking about that sin specifically. He's in a state of repentance. And he says in Psalm 51 verse 10, O Lord, create in me a clean heart. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. What is he saying? God, break these chains. I never want to fall back into that again. God, I don't want to sin against you again. I fell into adultery. I fell into deceit. I fell into murder. And I never want to do it. God, break the chains because I know I can't change without you changing me. I need you to change my heart so I can change my behavior. But there has to be the desire to want to change our behavior to the point that we're asking, God, please take this from me. Break these chains. I know only you can do it. I can't do it on my own. We got to be willing to ask. There has to be the desire to be delivered. And when we ask so often, God answers Look what happens. It's Acts chapter 12, verse 8. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did, and he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. So he went out and followed him and did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. Now, this is really important, okay? Peter is growing, okay? Let me show you. The angel asked him to do something one time and Peter did it. Okay, every other time it's taken Peter three times. You have to ask him three times to do something. He's disobedient the first couple times. Finally, reluctantly, he does it. So it gives us hope, right? Even if you have this pattern where you're disobedient to the Lord about the same thing, eventually you do it. Hey, there's hope for us. We can progress to the spot that God asked us to do something once and we actually do it. Peter shows us that hope. But look what else happens here in verse 9. He went out and followed him and he did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. He's like, is this like, you know, back in Acts chapter 10 with the sheet and the unclean animals? Is God just trying to get something across to me? It was so miraculous. He didn't even think it was real. Now we got to remember, God has used Peter to raise people from the dead. He's seen the miraculous. He's seen Jesus bring people from the dead. God has used them in amazing ways. And this is so miraculous. He doesn't even believe it. Sometimes the Lord does such amazing things in our life that it's hard for us to even believe. When I look back to all the things that God's done in my life, I'm dead serious. Sometimes I wake up and I'm like, is this even real? Like, is this, there's no way I should be here. There's no way I should be alive right now. 
But God showed up time and time again. It's almost too good to be real, but I know that it's real. Peter's seeing that. It's so amazing. It doesn't even seem real. He broke the chains. And now Peter is free. And his freedom is miraculous to him. As it should be for us. So the text continues. Verse 10. When they were past the first and the second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street and immediately the angel departed from him. You see this? An iron gate, a big old iron gate. It opens automatically. I don't think I have to remind you about this, but they didn't have electricity in those days. Okay, There was no automatic doors, you know, like the kind that you walk, walk up in, in the grocery stores and they just open. That's not what they had back then. This was a supernatural thing. And it started through prayer. Through the prayer of the church, this door was open. That's point number three. Prayer opens doors. Prayer opens doors. <clears throat> We don't see Peter get get anxious and get bent out of shape about this huge obstacle before him. No, the thing is open. But sometimes we can see these big iron gates in our life. Lord, do you want me to move any further? Well, I'll tell you this. If God wants you to walk through that gate, he'll open the iron door. He, He will. He'll open it up. He'll give you the opportunity. He'll give you the strength. He'll give you the confirmation to walk through that door. He does it throughout the Bible. Let me show you a story. In Acts chapter 16, over a few pages, it's Paul. He's already been on one missionary journey, super successful, went back to Jerusalem, has the council in chapter 15, then chapter 16, he's going back on a second uh, missionary journey, and he knows generally that God's called him to be a missionary, and he's called him to preach the gospel and make disciples, but he doesn't know exactly where, so he takes a step of faith, and look what happens here in Acts chapter 16, verse 6. It says, now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. He tried to go preach the gospel in Asia. The Lord said, no, I'm closing this door. It wasn't a door that stayed closed forever. It's a door that stayed closed in that moment. No, you're not supposed to go through this door. So... Paul's like, let me try another door. Look at verse 7. After they had come to Mysia, they tried to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit did not uh, did not permit them. So the Spirit closes another door. Yeah, you're doing what God's called you to do. You're just not doing it in the right place. So I'm closing these doors so that you walk through the door that I've opened for you. And look what he does. That's exactly what he does. Verse 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, after he had seen the vision immediately we sought to go to macedonia concluding that the lord had called us to preach the gospel to them he's doing the right thing preaching the gospel he just wasn't in the right place he says i want you to come here so what does the lord do he closes two doors to open another the iron gates were shut there they didn't open but one iron gate it opened in macedonia what's the point Gotta pray for open doors, but not just for open doors, for closed doors as well. God, hey, I want to do this and I have a desire to do this, but if you don't want me to do it, then please close the door. Anytime we pray about direction from the Lord, we have to pray with the same heart that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. 
Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. This is what I want, but you know what I need. So I'm going to pray according to what you know, not according to what I want. And if you want me to go through this door, I'll go through this door. I'd rather go through this one, but I'll go through this one if you want me to go through this one. There has to be the reality that we pray with the sense of surrender when we're asking God to open and shut doors. Because sometimes the Lord will let us do this. You know, He will let us kick doors open that he's already closed. What do I mean? He says he gives us over to the desires of our heart when we don't listen to him. It's Romans chapter 1. When we keep saying, no, God, this door, this door, this door. And he's like, no, no, not now. No, no, not, no, no, no. And eventually say, okay, fine, go through it. But you know what's through that door? Destruction. You're going to regret it. I don't want you to go through that door. But if you want to kick down that gate, go ahead. It's going to be a lot of work and it's going to cause a lot of pain. But I'll be waiting on the other side when you realize that wasn't the door that I called you to walk through. There has to be the willingness. There has to be the surrender. There has to be the desire to just go wherever God calls us to go, do whatever he's called us to do. So as the church prays, we see this door open for Peter. Look at verse 10. Sorry, verse 11. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. Now he realizes it's not just a vision. Like, I'm actually free. But look what else he says here. He says that he knows that God has delivered him from the hand of Herod. Literally, that God has delivered him from his enemy. This is point number four. Prayer delivers us from the enemy. Prayer delivers us from the enemy. The church is praying. Not only are the chains broken, not only is the door opened, but Peter is delivered from the enemy. In fact, when Jesus teaches the disciples how to pray, this is one of the things that he says, right? Pray that you'd be delivered from the evil one. This is something we ought to pray. This is something that we ought to ask. Now, uh, if you've been walking with the Lord for any length of time, you know spiritual warfare. And, And you know the enemy comes and he's out to steal, to kill and destroy. But Jesus says, pray that you'll be delivered. Pray that God will deliver you. And you know what? That's a prayer that God will answer. Now, this doesn't mean that you're not gonna go through, uh, havoc and go through pain and go through suffering. We know as long as we're in this world, there's going to be warfare. But we also know Jesus said in John chapter 10, no one can pluck you out of my hand. So even though the enemy might be able to to mess with you and do things in your life only as the Lord wills, ultimately, I'm the one that's going to deliver you. Sometimes we just got to pray for deliverance. God, deliver me from this season of suffering. Deliver me from the spiritual warfare that I'm going through. And when we pray, he's able to do it. So he's delivered from Herod, Acts chapter 12, verse 12. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark. Okay, this is John Mark, um, the author of the gospel of Mark. Um, we'll get into him a little bit later. So goes to John Mark's house, not John, the apostle John. This is John Mark. Okay, where many were gathered together praying And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate. 
but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But they said to her, you are beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, it is his angel. Now Peter continued knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. They're praying for Peter's deliverance. And then when it happens, they're shocked. Wow. God really answered that prayer. I'm so, like, I didn't know that he was going to answer that. Like he didn't answer it with James. Why is he answering it now? We shouldn't be surprised when God answers our prayers. In fact, we should expect it in part as long as we're praying according to God's will, praying according to his art. Our prayers are lining up with his character. There should be an expectation. God's going to answer some of my prayers. That's a reality. See, Rhoda has a different response than the rest of the church. She responded to Peter with gladness. So much gladness that she left him outside. Like she forgot, oh my gosh! And she just runs back to tell the rest of the church. But this is how we should pray. We should pray with this joyful, confident expectation that God is able to answer our prayers. We shouldn't be astonished when God actually comes through with the prayer. Now I will say this. This gladness that Rhoda experiences and the joy that we experience when the Lord answers prayers shouldn't be contingent upon God answering the prayers. Meaning, we don't pray from a joyful, confident expectation, believing or thinking that if God doesn't answer this prayer, then my joy is gone. See, our joy... It comes from the Lord, not whether or not our prayers are answered. Whether God answered this prayer or not, there's a place and there's a reason to have joy. We see this gladness in Rhoda. Look what happens in verse 17. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, go tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. What does he declare to them? What God did, how he answered their prayers. God delivered me. Can you think about the last prayer that God answered in your life? Maybe it was a little prayer. Maybe it was a big prayer. Peter declares that the prayer was answered. This is something that we're called to do too. Talk to people. Tell people when God answers our prayers. Now I will say this. There are certain things, certain prayers, certain things God does in our life that are between him and us. How he tells the leper, hey, don't go telling everybody, right? But there's also a reality when God does a mighty work in your life and he answers a prayer powerfully, we should consider telling people. Why? What does it do? It inspires faith. God's doing something in their life. Man, that makes me want to pray more. God answered that prayer. Let me share with you. Yesterday, uh, during the yard sale, were you guys all up here yesterday? I mean, like in the area? Okay, so there's a lot of fog. Okay, it was pretty nasty. Um, and uh, after a while, we're like, man, the fog, yada, yada. So I'm standing next to Matthew Medina, and I look up out loud. I say, God, clear the fog and let the sun come out. Literally, a minute later, sun comes out. Two minutes later, sun's gone again. Okay, I'm thinking maybe I've got to pray about this more fervently. Uh, either way, the bigger prayer that was answered yesterday is praying about that yard sale. You know, there was a time where we weren't sure how many people were going to show up. We weren't sure how many items we were going to have. 
But as we continued to pray and as I saw the Lord about it, God, I want this. I wanted my big thing was if we can raise thirteen hundred dollars, I'll be blown away because that's enough for one person to go on the mission trip. I will be blown away. And now to him who does exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think we got two thousand from that yard sale yesterday. I wonder what would have happened if people weren't praying. I also wonder what would happen if people were praying more. Because God used it. He delivered. He answered. Just as he did with the early church and Peter. So Peter, he tells them how God answered the prayer. And he also tells them, hey, go tell James and the rest of the brethren. James, obviously not the one that was just beheaded. This is James, the brother of Jesus. We'll see in Acts chapter 15, half brother technically. Acts chapter, you know, same mother, different father type of thing. So they technically, we'll see in Acts chapter 15, that he becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem, the main church there. He's the go-to guy. He's got the last say in the matters that end up coming up in the early church. It's interesting because James didn't even believe Jesus was the Messiah when he was in his earthly ministry. But we've talked about this after the resurrection and Jesus appeared to his brothers that James came to faith. And not only that, he became one of the more important leaders in the early church. So Peter says, hey, James and the rest of the brethren, they need to know about this. Acts chapter 12, verse 18. Then as soon as it was day, There was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from there, uh, from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. So obviously this is an issue, right? Herod's planning on killing Peter and now Peter is free. Who does he go to? The guards that were supposed to be watching Peter. Well, in that day, the custom was, especially in Rome, if you were on duty as a guard for a prisoner and they escaped, it was on you. And often the times it was capital punishment was the consequence for allowing a prisoner to escape. We see Herod. He's a very wicked man. We see him have James killed. Then we see him have these soldiers killed that were just trying to serve him. There's no indication that this was some type of conspiracy, right? This was all because the Lord was doing. The soldiers couldn't do anything about it. They didn't do anything wrong uh, concerning the situation that happened in the text. See, here in a few verses, we're going to see that because Herod didn't extend mercy towards man, he's not going to receive it from God. Why? Jesus taught us this. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, in Matthew 5, 7, he says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. If we want mercy from God, we better extend mercy to man. Herod doesn't extend mercy to man, and he's not going to receive mercy from God. Look what happens. Acts chapter 12. Verse 20, now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, but they came to him with one accord and having made Blastus, the king's personal aid, their friend, they asked for peace because the country was supplied with the food by the king's country. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. 
Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and died. So he has this issue with these people of Tyre and Sidon. Don't know exactly what the issue was, but they're trying to make right with him. So they start worshiping him as a God. And Herod makes the mistake of receiving this worship. And because he receives this worship, he ends up getting stri- uh, struck, looks, seems like a disease, uh, and he uh, finally dies. Now, what I find really interesting here is that we don't see the church send an assassin to put a hit out on Herod. What do I mean? The church wasn't trying to avenge themselves. Why? Because God says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. They accepted whatever happened. What do you think Herod's going to do if he's alive? He's probably going to kill more Christians, okay? They know this. They're not dumb. But they don't take it into their own hands to avenge themselves. They trust the Lord to avenge them. And the Lord does. He proves that vengeance is his. All the church did from the text was pray. And I say all as if Oh, just all. No, it's the power of prayer. You've heard the expression before. Charles Stanley says it like this. We must remember that the shortest distance between our problems and their solutions is the distance between our knees and the floor, right? He didn't, they didn't come back with the swords and try to strike Herod down. All they did was pray and God took care of everything else. Acts chapter 12, verse 24. But the word of God grew and multiplied. The church continues to grow in this text and it started back in the beginning from persecution and then prayer. That's point number five. Prayer multiplies the church. Prayer multiplies the church. This is one of the primary reasons that God calls us to pray. Praying for people's salvation. It's First Timothy chapter 2. We were there. I want to read it again in the last, uh, uh, from verses one to four. It says, therefore, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. What's good and acceptable? Praying for all men. Okay, that's the context. Look what he says in verse 4. Who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God wants us to pray so people can be saved. That's why he wants us to pray, among other things. That chains can be broken in their life. That they'll be delivered from the enemy. That they'll recognize Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So when we pray, people get saved The church is multiplied. Prayer is truly the most powerful tool God has ever given us. And we see through the word of God, he charges us to pray and encourages us to pray. But when we pray, we're inviting the creator to get involved, to intervene, to change hearts, to change circumstances, to change the world as we know it. What's also interesting here is that this text, it started with persecution, right? First James, then Peter, almost killed. The church prays. We see this pattern throughout the book of Acts. 
wherever there's an act of God, it's followed by an act of the enemy, only to later be followed by a greater act of God. And that's exactly what happened. The enemy can't stop God. He, he's more powerful than God. God is the one in control. He's like toying with them. He's like toying like a cat and a mouse. Like he is just messing with, all right, if you do this, first of all, they're going to heaven and the church is just going to grow. Go ahead, kill them. Take them out. More people are going to get saved through it. God is obviously in control of everything that's going on. Look what happens in verse 25. This is where we'll close. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry. And they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Now, this is really going to connect to next week's teaching. But I want to end on this. If you were with us last week. Uh, at the end of Acts, Acts chapter 11, verse 30, we see that Barnabas and Paul, uh, they went to go bring a gift, financial provision, uh, among other things, to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the church there, was in need. So they accumulated resources in Antioch, and then they went and delivered this to Jerusalem. But I want to point out something so crucial, it says. Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when... They had fulfilled their ministry. Not before, not during, when they fulfilled it. Afterwards. See, sometimes we can get so caught up in the next thing. God, what do you have for me tomorrow? What about next week? What about next season? They didn't go home until they were done. God didn't send them home until their work was completed. Here's a reality. As long as we're on this earth, God has a work for us to do. Until he calls us home, there's work to be done. Until you're dead, you're not done. But not just on this earth, your specific location, your occupation, where you live, where you grocery shop, all these places, those are locations God calls you to and uses to fulfill your ministry. Sometimes we get ahead of the game. We jump to the next thing. Paul and Barnabas, they didn't come back until they completed what the Lord had called them to do. Now, as we see, all these things are happening. Yes, because the Lord is moving, but much of it is because the Lord is moving through prayer. Prayer is powerful. Prayer, it changes things. A short conversation with the Creator goes a long way. And we can minimize, okay, what is it if I just pray about this or whatever? Don't ever minimize it. We can't minimize it. We never know when God is going to break the chains of a close relative, of a stranger. We ever never know how through one prayer God will change the hearts of a leader, give them a completely different perspective, a biblical perspective. We can't minimize any of it. It's a powerful tool that God has given us us but that tool is on us to use if we use the tool god promises to make it work but we have the responsibility to use it let's pray lord we thank you for your word and we thank you that you give us examples in the word and in our life of, of the power of prayer, God, and how you move. Uh, and it's so easy for us to forget all the prayers that you've answered for us, God, all the family members and friends you've delivered uh, from the, the prison of their own sin. Uh, God, so much you've done. 
And so much of it has been through the power of prayer. God, I pray that you would continue to challenge us and, and encourage us to, to develop our prayer lives. You say pray without ceasing, so we can technically always pray more. God, so I pray that our prayer lives wouldn't just be about the abundance of words, but the sincerity of our hearts, God. We would see you move. We would see prayers answered in this church and across the, across the globe, God, through your body. Lord, we thank you for the gift of prayer. Lord, we pray that you would bless our day. In Jesus' name, amen.